We're talking criminal justice reform, a styrofoam ban, some lakefront property in Geneva, a new 10-year deal in the city of Geneva that's raising a little bit of controversy, and the future of professional baseball in the Finger Lakes. It's Friday, December 13th. Oh, no, that's that's not good. December 13th. <laughs> uh, you're listening to The Debrief Podcast. I'm Josh Durson. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Jackie Augustine, as well as Ted Baker and Gabe Petrazio. Thank you, thank you, thank you all for being here. It's nice to have the whole crew reunited again. Always um, a lot of fun. And it's we're actually not talking about elections, which is nice, right? <laughs> we're done with elections fully. For a while. Uh, for a while. Um, Friday the 13th, do we have any superstitious concerns today that we need to get out of the way up front? There well, are a lot of scary no, things I'm in local big, politics. Uh, I'm not a big superstition guy. Okay. All right. Well, um, scariest thing for me that I've seen, and we talked about it this morning uh, on your show, Ted, um, the scariest thing I've seen so far is more budgets passed without anybody showing up to meetings or Mm -hmm. public hearings. Um, Jackie, I'm not sure if you, uh, has Ontario County adopted their uh, budget yet to your knowledge? Uh, That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. Well, so Seneca County, as we talked about this morning, uh, adopted theirs, uh, bundled with several amendments in the same resolution. So they, they did it all in one shot. Apparently it didn't matter because nobody showed up to the public hearing to to speak. And there were very few people even in attendance. Um, so my curiosity is, and I want to throw this to you guys to just, is this a bad time of year to be doing budget <laughs> important stuff. When it comes to money in government, it seems like no one wants to engage right on the other side of election season and this close to obviously you're between the two biggest holidays, of course, um, in the United States. I mean, you're talking about uh, it would have been December 11th, I guess, that the, that the budget was passed. There were like five people at this county meeting. Uh, it just... it. It boggles my mind because this is not the first time, of course. This happens all the time. And even a few weeks ago when uh, the the county supervisors had a a budget workshop, which was open to the public, nobody showed up. What, like, is there anything that local government could do to maybe, just maybe, get another human or two at these meetings And, and providing some kind of input? I just think most people don't feel like they have the time to dig that far into the minutiae. And I also don't think a lot of people think that their voice would be heard. I mean, if I'm against the budget and I go to the hearing and go, I don't like this, I don't like that, what's going to happen? They're going to pass it anyway, and I've wasted my time. It is interesting. I mean, you, you've you been, a, I feel like, a longtime critic of the way some boards operate in terms mm-hmm. of their meetings, where they feel very, like, sped up and sort of packaged and canned, I guess, in some ways. Do you think that contributes partly to it? Yeah, I think a lot of people who go to an Ontario County Board of Supervisors meeting don't want to go back because you come in, they block 15 resolutions, they vote to accept that they will block the 15, then they vote to accept those, and then they go home. And, you know, they kind of gather in a jovial way, um, with the chairman afterward and kind of joke about how quickly they were able to get out of the meeting. And it doesn't feel like they, 
it, it feels like what Ken Camera used to call democracy theater, where they're doing it because they have to do it, but it's already predetermined what's going to happen, and they don't. There isn't really anything that would change that course. Now, in their defense, in the county supervisor's defense, at least Ontario County, they would say most of the heavy lifting happens in committee. But then I would just point out that those committees meet in the middle of the workday, um, usually in um, a conference room or an office that people aren't as familiar with in terms of location, and they aren't well publicized either in terms of when they're meeting or what the agenda is, except on the county website, which I'm not sure every county resident has bookmarked as their homepage. So it's not the most inclusive or inviting way which I think government has a responsibility to bend over backward to get people involved in what's going on. But I think a lot of elected officials feel like, well, I'm here and I'm going to do this stuff because that's what I'm here for. And if people don't like it, they can seek me out. Well, there's been a lot of debate in Seneca County about whether um, the way they do committee meetings actually works. And it's interesting, you mentioned having committee meetings scattered throughout the month or mm -hmm. during you know afternoon hours things like that um, Seneca County does it the opposite where on the third third or fourth Tuesday of the month um, they they meet and they hold every single committee meeting at the same scheduled time as when ordinarily the, the Board of Supervisors would meet in that five to six o'clock window um, turnout doesn't seem to be any better in that scenario and it seems that honestly most people just get really frustrated with how long that session ends up going that's the that typically is the one that winds up lasting three three and a half four hours because you're you're cramming essentially six or seven committee meetings that all have their own separate agendas into one night um, it's interesting because I'm just not sure there's I'm not sure what the answer is because it seems like no matter which way you go there whether you have the the committees that meet throughout the month um, or you have the committees that meet all at once, it doesn't really seem like either way you see a lot more people engaged in actually being part of the process. Now, I wonder if maybe the process needs to be changed a little bit where engagement looks different. Maybe engagement yeah. isn't just showing up to a meeting and engagement is some other means of, of recording. Because it's interesting, like I, I, I chuckled the other night I was at that county, that the Seneca County meeting, and every month they accept, I'd say probably around a dozen or, or up to two dozen uh, different forms of communication that the county or that the, the clerk has received mm -hmm. on behalf of the board. And there is a, like there is a, a list of those things, but you you never really know what any of those things are if you're if you're not there or even if you are there you don't really know like you only know a sort of a, a quick little description and a bullet a bullet point i think there needs to be new ways for um, elected officials to receive and actually be held to act on the things that people send to them say to them not just it it can't just be uh, show up to the meeting if you give a damn because, right. you know, right. that's just the way it works. Well, and also in defense of the boards, one thing we have to keep in mind is it, it, most budgets 
anywhere 70%, some school budgets it's 80% of spending is mandated and no one has any control over it anyway. Sure. So what we're really arguing about is 20 or 30% of the budget that can be done anything about because the rest of it's all contracted or mandated spending. Mm-hmm. All right. So first topic of the day, uh, criminal justice reforms are on the way. Lawmakers signaled earlier this week that changes uh, to the reforms adopted earlier last session, uh, no changes to those. They're coming January 1st. And in a lot of cases, we've actually seen that they've already um, begun implementing around the region. Uh, different counties have just sort of jumped it and said, we'd rather get ahead of this thing than have to deal with it on January 1st. So actually, like it seemed, judging from the press releases that our newsroom was getting, it kind of seemed like middle of November was around that time frame when, when uh, DA's offices and different law enforcement agencies around the, uh, around the Finger Lakes started to, to act as if the, the new rules were in mm-hmm. place. Um, there have been plenty of headlines. Um, Democrats have largely said that this is a lot of fear-mongering from the right and from uh, law enforcement in that community in terms of what concerns have been raised about the reforms. Uh, meanwhile, a lot of other folks are saying, you know, this is this was just implemented too quickly. Like this is maybe some of these reforms are merited and maybe they need to be implemented, but maybe we needed to pump the brakes along the way and not approach this so quickly. My question for you guys is what concerns and Ted, I, I guess I want to start with you since you and I are in the same business where we hear this over and over and over again. What concerns have you heard so far that, that seem valid and do you think there is an element of like fear-mongering or overblowing of those concerns um, so far? I think there absolutely, without a doubt, is fear-mongering and overblowing of concerns. However, uh, on the other side's argument, I do think it was probably rushed through too quickly. I'm having a hard time understanding where the big problem is. The, the, you know, the... The story from the right is that all these criminals are going to be let loose to run free across the land and they won't show up for court. What's the difference between a guy being put out on bail and not showing up for court and a guy getting a ticket with no bail and not showing up for court? I saw it, I I should have brought this with me, I I don't remember where I saw it, but there was a, a, a piece I saw a few weeks back that said the vast majority of people who don't return for their court dates either forgot or never got the notification when they were supposed to show up. I I just, my only problem, I guess, with it is I don't understand that how high a level it went up to. It seems to me for vehicular homicide or something, you might want to keep bail around. But for the most part, I don't see a whole lot of real difference taking place once this goes into effect. I, I just, I don't understand all of the opposition against it. I just really don't. Jackie, what says you? Well, it's interesting because I was listening yesterday to Evan Dawson's podcast, and he had um, a a bunch of of law enforcement from Monroe County Mm -hmm. on because they were talking about this like officer harassment. The anti so there's a yeah the anti harassment uh, measure that was passed at the county level. That's a separate topic, topic. But anyway. Some one I, I don't know if it was a county sheriff or, if, or Monroe County Sheriff or if it was someone from uh, one of the local police departments or in one of the suburbs of Rochester. But 
one of the law enforcement officials said the problem with all of these reforms is that they are giving criminals the upper hand. And Evan Dawson had to stop the podcast for a second, you know, pause the conversation and say, these reforms are for people who are accused of crimes and we have to protect people who are uh, accused of crimes because you are innocent until proven guilty. So to label these reforms as somehow helping criminals, I think belies the underlying issue, which is that we don't understand and accept in our society that there is a legal process and that that legal process needs to be fair and it should not advantage people who are wealthy and it needs to be something that is sensible so that people, if they are innocent, if they are proven innocent at the end, um, haven't suffered irreversible consequences like losing their job or their driver's license right. or their, their livelihood. Mm -hmm. So I think if we reframe it in that way and we back up and say we're not talking about protections for criminals, we're talking about better process for dealing with people who are accused of a crime, mm -hmm. maybe that would help, but that seems to that nuance seems to be getting lost. So I can't take credit for that. I attribute that to Evan Dawson for pointing out so clearly what I think part of the issue has been that that this is framed as benefiting criminals, which I think we all need to accept is putting the cart before the horse. We you know, law enforcement is not the jury. Right, and as you said, cash bail overwhelmingly punishes poor people. Right, right. White-collar criminals pay a bail bondsman 10% and they're on their way. Poor people sit in jail three weeks, four weeks waiting for their trial, and by that time when they're found innocent, they've lost their job, like you say. Yeah. I mean, it just... And I don't think there's any real indication that cash bail compels people to return, because that seems to be the big talking point, is that you know no one's going to show up for their court date now. And the, and the facts just don't match that well, opinion. It's interesting, and I, there was a, a bit of anecdotal evidence that I did want to share, but to that end, I agree. Like It, it seems like cash bail is used, is used primarily as a measure to keep people from leaving in the first place so that they have no choice but to show up. It, it literally enforces them showing up by preventing them from leaving before they have to show up. Um, which kind of seems to run contrary to the whole concept on its face. Um, the anecdotal, anecdotal evidence, though, I guess the best example I, I could I could find um, recently, uh, Seneca Falls Police Chief Stu Peenstra um, highlighted an example uh, where essentially an individual was was charged with uh, felony assault in Seneca Falls, um, an order of protection uh, against the the victim and. Uh, the place of business where the assault happened uh, was issued, but they were not held because of the because of the pending changes. Um, about a week and a half, two weeks later, that person violated the protective order. They were arrested again, and I, I, to that end, I'm not sure what the next step was in that process, if they were actually held or if they were released again. Um, but it kind of goes back to the point. That seems to be the kind of example that law enforcement is pointing to, saying, look, this guy assaulted another person or was accused of assaulting another person. This person spent, in this example, three days, I believe, in the hospital, and this, uh, the accused was then able to return again to that place. Which with... the accused could also have done if he'd put up bail. Right. 
So I don't, again, I just, I don't see that distinction that, that they're trying to make. It's interesting because it does, and sort of carrying that logic a step further, it does also seem like um, there's an, an element or an assumption being made that the folks, a lion's share of the folks who would be held on bail would also simultaneously not be able to make bail, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting sort of caveat to the whole thing too. Um, Gabe, what are your thoughts as, as the, the college student um, uh, in the room? I'm curious, uh, what is the, the pulse among younger people when it comes to this issue in general? Yeah, you know, I think building also off of Ted, I think one, something that we need to look at in New York State is pretrial services, which are lacking in the area. I think that text messaging and things of that sort to notify people that they have court dates and that they're supposed to be there is really crucial, and we don't really have that institutional capacity at this time to kind of develop that. And I think that that is the one flaw in this policy reform is that we really haven't developed pretrial services in a way where we can hopefully help people who are being accosted by the institution, by the system, who can't make bail to then go out and then possibly return to make sure that they're on their deadline for their trial because then they'll uh, be considered a fugitive and things of that sort. But I think for like college students, you know, you see in the paper from time to time that, you know, college students are being, you know, arrested for things and, and then they're held in jail and then they'll get out. And a lot of times, it, you know, on the campus, you could see that these people have the most wealth and that they're able to pay out of that more times than not usually. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting to see that there's a, it's a, a wealth disparity, I think, in that, res- in that respect and also in income inequality where those who have wealth are able to obviously surpass the system, not lose their job, and are able to keep their license and things of that sort. But for those who are disenfranchised, economically speaking, they have real harms that are associated to the system. As Jackie put, was innocent until proven guilty. So, One of the things that I saw in that article that I read was what uh, he was just talking about, which is that states that have implemented things like text notifications the rate of people showing up for the court date goes way up. In other words, it isn't that people are just saying, ah, I'm not going to court. It's they either don't get a notification or their court date is set, you know, 31 days from now and they just forget. I mean, it seems weird. You go, how, how can you forget a court date? But, uh, well, anecdotal evidence. If, you, if you're working three jobs and you've got kids, I mean, I can imagine how something slips your mind. Well, let me tell you, my, my, uh, my criminal... <laughs> Uh, scoffing story. I got one of those, uh, I had a headlight out, I got stopped for it, get the little ticket, have to get it fixed, I got it fixed, forgot to send the paper in. I'm on the air one morning and I realize I forgot to send that paper in and I pull out the sheet and my court date is that morning at 8.30, I'm on the air till 9. So I'm now officially a scoff law and so I drive down to the public safety building going, oh my god, what's going to happen to me? And they took care of it, but I mean that's just, you know, things slip your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because a lot of this seems to sort of be centered around the absence of technology or the absence of useful, basic technology, things that we just think about automatically, text message notifications. It's Christmas. It's Christmas season. I'm getting a lot of packages delivered to Mm -hmm. to various places. And let me tell you, if it weren't for text message notifications, I probably wouldn't even remember all of those (laughs) different things. Like that is one of the most basic, and it's funny because it's like we talk about different ways for government to hear from the people. Like mm-hmm. technology needs to be 
used. It has right. to be we, used we in a sensible way. We talk about this way. all the time. Yeah. Amazon can tell me that the driver just turned left on Hamilton <laughs> Street. Why can't I get a notification when I'm supposed to be in court? Right, right. So I, I guess and there's the other arm of this, which is also this, the sped-up process um, for prosecution <clears throat> and how that side of things, it kind of remains to be seen how that will play out. Um, it has been interesting, I think, uh, the example that comes to mind, the Auburn Citizen reported this week um, that uh, the Cuga County Legislature uh, denied uh, the district attorney's request for additional manpower mm -hmm. to handle the changes in sort of process. And I guess among all of the concerns that I've heard, that to me seems like the most valid. Yes. Because yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that because that that. The There's concern a change about coming. about staffing yeah. and funding is a legitimate concern because I mean just think about with the elections and the move to early voting like oftentimes the state has an idea mm -hmm. and maybe it's a good idea maybe it's not but they fail to understand that the implementation of that idea is going to yeah. burden local governments who are already stressed and the people who just cannot afford to pay more to make this happen. So it does seem, I mean, going back to mandated expenses, right? <laughs> there are a lot of expenses that are mandated for things that I might find unnecessary. But then when there's something substantial that seems like an important public policy shift, there is no mandated funding to go along with it. So that, I, I agree, is a valid concern that um, if if we want things to improve, like pretrial services, we need to be budgeting at the state level for those things to happen and not expecting county by county for the counties to solve these problems, which are issues of justice, right? Those are supposed to be universal concerns. It shouldn't be that you get a better process, more justice, in a wealthy community than you do, you know, if, if Pittsburgh can afford to send out text messages and implement that system, then the people in Pittsburgh, you know, they have a great justice system. And instead, you know, a smaller community that doesn't have the same tax base has to say, well, actually, we're going to send you a telegram when your, when your court date is, and it may or may not arrive, because the, if the pigeons are not available, Carrier we pigeons are coming. <laughs> well, I agree that the, the sped up discovery could be problematic, but what I also thought about is if we're not doing all of this booking in bail and everything, doesn't that free up some manpower? Because now instead of bringing somebody to the jail, putting them through booking, bailing and sending them on their way, now they get a ticket. So there, there it would seem that there'd be at least some manpower freed up for these additional resources for the sped up discovery. And also, we are supposed to have a right to a speedy trial. And I think we would agree that in our system right now, people don't get very speedy trials. I, I don't think going to trial, you know, three months later would be called speedy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think part of that also, um, there's, I think the pushback to that idea that there is there should be this freed up manpower. Overall, yes, in theory, I think there probably will be. But I think the argument, and this is just from listening to some different players in the process talk it seems like the manpower won't be in the right places. So you may have, you know, at the law enforcement centers around the around the state and in these counties, you might have more manpower, more freed up manpower, but that doesn't necessarily help uh, the district attorney who has new prosecutorial duties in the process. 
I, I just think that this right. probably would have been a, this part of it. Maybe if you wanted to get bail reform done, they should have stuck with bail reform and not processed this change as well in the same legislative session well, without doing a little more research in terms of what the actual cost might be or forecasting it out. But like because, Jackie said, it's just time after time in New York, the state has an idea and says, here, local governments, you must do this and pay for it. Huh. However you want. <laughs> Go at it. I think you've got to roll it out, too, in that sense. I think that this is a project that requires community buy-in, and this is building trust in that community to say, hey, look, we're going to invest in justice in that yeah. sense. And so I think that if there's no backing financially, if there's no mandates in that sense, then we're not signaling and government's not doing a good job at explaining what is this and why does it matter. If we're not funding it, it doesn't signal to you know communities that this is something we should invest in. And most people probably don't even know what pretrial services are because they've never been booked before. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think that there's a, a steep learning curve in that respect to actually overcome and to educate people, why should we invest in the criminals in that sense? Right. Is well, this and in our society, let's face it, criminals are those people that we kind of look down our noses on. I mean, that's why we have a two-tiered system where wealthy people can make bail and poor people have to sit and rot in jail for three weeks to get their court appearance to be sent back to jail to sit and rot for another three weeks. I guess, does it also feel like this is not necessarily as much of a, a positive reform or improvement to the, the potential relationship between law enforcement and the community at large as it maybe is being billed at the state? Because I use a place like Geneva as, my, as the quick example. Um, obviously, a community that has struggled with community-police relationship and that sort of back and forth. Um, it doesn't seem like this will do anything to help that, even though the state will say this is something that will ultimately improve the relationship between law enforcement and the community at large because it will create this apparent trust, I guess, because people won't be, um, the disenfranchised folks won't be uh, victimized in the system as frequently. But is that like, it just, that to me, it just doesn't add up. It's like, it's not the same thing. So please, Albany, don't don't say it's that. If you want right. to say this is a better system, fine, so be that. But don't say that this is a reform, I guess. I guess the word reform is what really bothers me because it doesn't really feel like a change that is going to improve the relationship between law enforcement prosecutors and the community at large or those who are accused well yeah, I, I, I am not convinced that that is a good argument for the changes um, I think justice is a good argument for the changes but um, no I, I agree that I don't see that people will get a direct connection between that and like police community relations I just think when all said and done not that much is going to change, but what's going to happen, the way our media works, is every single story is going to be highlighted, like the one you mentioned. Every single person that would have been on bail before who commits a second crime or goes back to the scene or mm -hmm. something, that's going to get highlighted. The 87 people who don't have to sit in jail and show up for the hearing and have their justice meted out, those stories probably aren't going to get focused on. And that's one of the things that I really do hope, you know, when we talk about uh, news and journalism across the state, I do hope that this gets appropriate coverage across the state throughout the first year so that people do understand it. I mean, the, the balance in terms of where the stories are or what the stories are, 
the success stories and also maybe some of the shortcomings that do come up right. and come along. Um, Ontario County recently heard from concerned uh, citizens, a local group, about the prospect of banning styrofoam in the county. A similar measure is uh, getting banned around Keuga County as well. Um, thoughts, guys? Uh, styrofoam ban. Ted, you and I have talked about this, but we've talked about styrofoam before. When the plastic bag ban was going through, <laughs> we both sort of agreed that well, if you're gonna if you're gonna do plastic bags, why stop there? Why not start going to to other things too? Mike. Curiosity is twofold. First, on on its face, the measure, but then also second, um, is this is this going to create a weird dynamic where you have like Ontario County could potentially have this type of ban in place. Seneca County would not have this ban in place. Cuga County could have this ban in place, and Wayne County may obviously does not is not even considering a ban of this nature. It's like so you're going county by county and you could get a styrofoam cup here in Seneca County but go to Ontario County and no they just Well I see bananas. a business opportunity to uh, set up some black market styrofoam shops myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean we're a wasteful society. These are wasteful products. A product designed to be used one time and thrown away is wasteful and and we're beginning to see a generational shift where the younger generation is holding our feet to the fire on some of these issues. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it is time that we get rid of some of these things. I mean, I, you know, plastic bags are wasteful, and they wind up in the trees, and they wind up in the ocean. And so, uh, you know, there's better ways. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, milk bottles out on the back porch. Those you know, glass to, bottles. <laughs> you, you used to you set the bottles out, and they'd bring you new ones and go wash the old ones. and. It seemed to work, so it's uh, it's a question between convenience because we're a wealthy society, and as such, we want our conveniences, but they're also very wasteful. So I think that we we really need to look at how necessary it is, and and even beyond that, we're in the Christmas season. How many things do we get on Christmas Day that come in a plastic package designed to be ripped open and thrown away? I, I mean, why does a baseball need to be in a plastic, you know? sealable bubble to protect its being perfection somewhere it needs to be perfect when you get it i, I guess <laughs> but so i you know i understand these concerns and, and i think they're legitimate i think it's good that we're addressing them gabe thoughts you know i i agree with ted in certain respect but also i think it's hard because you said it's it's entrenched in the society this yeah. is a cultural thing yeah. and people are accustomed to habits and habitual nature becomes behavior and and then this is the norm. So I think in that respect, we could get rid of styrofoam, which I think is a good idea. And at the same time, I think that there's a lot of opposition to it, obviously. But I think at the county level, I think it's interesting because you could see that counties are making decisions to actually kind of push agendas that maybe the state level will not engage with yet or at a, a rate that they may not think is appropriate. Um, because, you know, plastic bag ban obviously impacts business in New York State and things of that sort. And now you have the um, the fees on the bags as well that you have to pay. So I think that there's time to actually implement a policy that's sound in that respect to actually just instead of just cutting it off. But I think that it's interesting and at least that communities feel obligated, right, mm -hmm. to take up these missions and to actually believe in them at the county level instead of waiting for big government or this New York State to actually um, make changes themselves in that respect. It is interesting. We're like two and a half weeks, I think, away from seeing some major retailers um, across New York State stop stop doing plastic bags entirely. I'm hoarding them, man. I got a million at my house. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Jackie, what what are your thoughts on on those types of proposals in general? Well, I mean, I obviously want us reducing our waste because I I mean, how can you live here between the two trash mountains and not think we need to do something? But I guess I have a slightly different approach. I would love to see the state impose a single-use tax so that businesses that opt to use styrofoam, to use plastic bags, um, would pay for that convenience because there are other options and every business is making a calculation about their bottom line. And if there were a way to incentivize businesses to make better choices, um, then I think people would feel less like it's big government saying, you don't get a styrofoam cup anymore. And instead, it would say, okay, you want to, you know, I don't want to pick on any business, but, you know, you drive up coffee place, would like to serve your stuff in a a styrofoam cup. Well, here, that is an environmental cost to Mm -hmm. our entire community, so you're going to have to pay for that. And I think that at least would get people focused on the connection between the two issues that when you make a choice to go cheap, that has consequences, and we as a community should not bear those consequences. And we pay for this. We pay through this through diminished air quality. We have real costs that those businesses just pass on to us because they want to pay less for their take-home containers. And that's how deposit laws work. And right. if you remember, if you're old enough to remember when those came in, it was the same argument. Oh, it's the end of the world as we know it, and, and now everybody just throws them in a bin and goes and gets their nickel back. I guess my issue is just that it seems to, and sort of in the vein that we talked initially with the the plastic bag uh, ban, it doesn't seem to go far enough. We, uh, my fiance and I were out to dinner a couple weeks ago, and uh, she had gotten a, a to go container, and on the menu when we first got there, I had remembered seeing uh, this thing that said we don't use single use anything, or it said something along those lines. So, and, and when she got the 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 container it was just a, a biodegradable like you know it was it was still essentially a paper product of some sort mm. it wasn't like and i thought to myself well you know we recycle but a vast majority of people don't and this is just going to end up in the garbage anyway and it it just feels like instead of trying to find ways to shape the behavior in a better way we try to pass laws that will somehow in a passive way change behavior and that just doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like that has ever worked like i i understand the premise of like you know certain taxes on certain things to curb behavior that's one thing but when you're just sort of cherry picking different items saying this is not allowed anymore this product is not allowed anymore you're not changing the behavior of the person who's using the product other than maybe they don't get it when they go to the place. Yeah, I well, think my yeah, I, I just want to. I think my argument is less about trying to change people's behavior and more about actually recognizing the cost that goes right. along with certain business choices. Right. In the same way that if somebody is polluting, right, they have to have a permit for that. There has to be regulation. This is pollution. Passing out plastic bags and straws and styrofoam stuff is pollution. You are handing out polluting products. That goes into our landfills. It ends up in our water and air. I think there should be a cost. And 
I think it makes the most sense, you know, nationally, but of course that's not going to happen. But at least on a state level, the state should say, yeah, we don't want to be the dumping ground. And so we are going to say, if you want to contribute to our landfills by handing this stuff out, you're going to pay up front. Well, and I think in terms of changing attitudes, that's going to come over time. I mean, when, when my baby boomer generation starts dying off, the new generation will come along and beliefs that we held they won't hold, and, and it'll reach a point where someone will go, you know, plastic, single-use straw, why would anyone do that? I mean, it, generations kind of, the, the, the attitudes evolve over time. So I think that's the, what's driving these attempts at changing the law is younger generation coming along, and that's how societies change, is we question our long-held beliefs and go, no, that's crazy. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, using, uh, you know, using drinking devices as as a quick example like i don't know many people my age or younger who use religiously these any sort of like plastic single use it seems like most of the younger generation has already adopted the sort of reusable glass or right. non-plastic when i was your age the the concept of the water bottle didn't exist right you went to a water cooler and got a little paper cup or something so yeah those those attitudes evolve over time all right, so let's let's talk about another city, uh, another uh, issue in uh, Ontario County. Uh, a seven-acre parcel of city land uh, has been sold. It's along five and twenty. It was obviously subject to intense debate a couple of years ago, or maybe a year and a half ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like this is kind of a peaceful resolution to this. The, the sale was between the city and the state. Um, it basically transfers ownership of the parcel that was previously talked about being developed in some way, shape, or form on the private uh, the private side to just basically becoming parkland. Um, and it seems like most people are content with that. Jackie, am I wrong, or is there are there still some minor concerns? Um, I mean, I went to the meeting and I spoke... Um, Initially, I spoke against it because I had some concerns about uh, sales tax distribution, which in Ontario County is this really like complicated, overly meant to protect small jurisdictions against the cities, whatever kind of distribution model. But separate discussion. But um, but Fred Bond, the regional park director, was at the most recent city council meeting and was able to address directly their plans, which is to increase the naturalized area and the wetlands. Um, and he did mention that they're more interested in controlling their entrance, which th- that was the only reservation I continued to have. When we talked about the land swap 10 years ago, it keeps coming up, right? One of the questions was, there are city residents, and it's mostly, I think, just city residents who, who do it for this purpose because maybe they're the only ones who know about it. But, you know, there is a piece of city-owned land near the entrance that has a little pull-off. People park there, they take their strollers, and they bring the kids in that way to avoid paying the, the park fee. Now, that is, because it's city land, 10 years ago, you know, I said that's that's kind of an amenity. That's a way of helping people who need a little extra help with their kids with recreation in the summertime. Um, they said, Fred Bond said at the meeting, that there won't be any, even though the purchase does include the actual roadway itself, that they aren't moving the gatehouse, they aren't going to do anything that would prevent 
regular vehicles from still getting in and accessing that city par parcel, which now gets more use for disc golf than it mm -hmm. does maybe for kids' yeah. recreation. So, um, you know, as that parcel has changed over time, I think the concern was more about that side, I guess the west side of the entrance, than the east. And now, um, since this will keep it hopefully forever green, I mean, the process of alienating parkland, the city of Geneva has done it before, the corner of Exchange and Lake Street, that was an alienation process, but that was long, that was complicated, I, I saw that happen. I can't imagine that the state park would undertake something like that for that portion right there. So. Yes, now I feel much better. And that it. would require some movement out of Albany too, I would assume, right? There yeah, would have and to it be has some... to be a, an equal trade. I right. don't know if that's an equal trade across the park system or if it's within the same jurisdiction. I don't really know those details, but I guess I'm maybe overly naive, but when he came in and said, this is what we're going to do, I feel comfortable that that's what they will actually do with it. It's interesting because all of these... Uh, that debate in general seemed to hinge throughout its life on the tax problem, the, the taxable land problem mm -hmm. that Geneva, the city has. And you and I, Ted, talked about this this morning. Um, it seems like no matter what the city does in a situation like that, there are going to be residents, some residents who, who say, well, wait a second, this just continues the trend that the city has been on for the last 20 plus years where it just it doesn't work. The balance isn't right. Well, it's part of the, the whole lakefront development issue, and it came up in some of the council debates, is, is a lot of people say, there's a lot of land there, we could have some limited development, not right up to the lake, but further back a little bit, between 5 and 20 in the lake, you could have some commercial development that would generate taxable income, but still have the open room, still, you know, don't take away the walking path, and, and so that's, uh, the, the two issues kind of go together, that whole issue of the lack of taxable property on the tax rolls. So that's why a lot of people are saying, gee, we could have some development, not ruin the lakefront, but find a balance. But the problem is it's, it's been very difficult to find a balance because you have kind of the business people that want to pave over the whole thing and the green people that don't want anything. It's interesting. Uh, another city issue that we got to talk about, uh, Hobart and William Smith Colleges will pay the city of Geneva $2.4 million over the next 10 years as part of a newly minted deal between the two. Some residents voice concern about an outgoing city council making this decision. Uh, is the deal, two questions, I guess, is the deal good or bad? And do we have a problem with city council making this decision in December at one of those meetings that I was agonizing over earlier in the show? Because probably turnout was not that great. Jackie, let's start with you. I was there, I spoke, <laughs> um, and I, the meeting was not horribly attended. I mean, I think that there were people in the audience there to watch, only a couple people spoke, um, but I do think there was a general puzzle about why an agreement that doesn't expire until the end of 2021 would be taken up in 2019 by a council made up of seven people who aren't going to be on council in a month. And that, I don't think, sat well 
with a lot of people in the audience, whether they spoke or not. I mean, just listening to people's conversations at their seats. Um, No one could figure out what the rush was. And I have to say, nobody on city council made an argument to explain or assuage any of the concerns that there wasn't something that wasn't being said, right? I mean, that everybody left with a, what was that all about? Because you're binding a council 10 years down the road when you still have two years remaining on a contract. And that, so it just seemed weird. It seemed strange. We can talk about the merits of it separately, process-wise. It just doesn't seem like something you should do. Ted, process before we get into the merits. Well, I, I, I don't have a problem with the current council acting on something that comes before them because that's their job to do. But, yeah, why are we opening this up this far ahead of time? It, it smacks of an insider sort of deal. But in a larger issue, why don't Hobart and William Smith Colleges pay taxes? Why doesn't Finger Lakes Health pay taxes? Why don't churches pay taxes? If the church burns down, who's going to come put it out? The fire department. So I pay taxes, so my home's protected by the fire department, but the church doesn't. Uh, I have a contrary view of the Constitution where, where it says government shall not respect the establishment of any religion. To me, that means you get no special privileges or no special burdens from government. So frankly, I don't understand why those people aren't paying taxes anyway. And I get the impression that the feeling is that the payment that they are making probably doesn't cover the cost of the government services they use. Yes, HWS contributes to the community. Yes, Finger Lakes Health contributes to the community. Churches contribute to the community. I'd like to think our radio station contributes to the community, but we're not tax-free. It's <laughs> interesting. Uh, Gabe, your thoughts, obviously, uh, you're in a slightly different situation. You're a student at Hobart. <laughs> so, uh, That's right. you know, what is the, obviously, I, I wouldn't imagine this is something that college students are talking about on campus, mm-hmm. um, but obviously you, you covered the city of Geneva, obviously here. Um, so what have you seen? What have you heard? And, and how does this strike you? How does a deal like this strike you? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that was brought up is the fact that, like, after this election cycle, basically everyone, Republicans and Democrats alike, across the candidacy, were like, the college don't contribute enough. You know, this is a situation that we need to address. We need to ask for more. We need to increase taxation and things of that sort. And as nonprofit entities, they're not obligated to do so. So I think in the framing of the the agreement itself is that, that they're obligated to do so is not the case despite that the city doesn't really have a tax base in itself to subsist itself. But in relation to, I think, the fire issues as well as that they put $25,000 down for fire services from that agreement um, moving forward or something to that sentiment um, to cover uh, fire alarms and things of that sort Mm -hmm. that the services do use, which they do go off and students do cause that issue um, for city fire department. But I think um, at its core, you look at it and... I think that, at least at the college's perspective, is that they increased the revenue for the agreement uh, substantially uh, from the previous 10-year agreement. And you also see that businesses this last summer alone have closed in the absence of college students with um, Finger Lakes Live and entities like that, um, that the region itself in many ways has been built with HWS's presence there, but also with other entities like FLCC and things of that sort, where 
it's drawing a lot of revenue in there where the local uh, community isn't able to put as much money and do the lodging, right? Housing, food, things of that sort, graduation, all these fees and expenses incurred. So I think that in that respect is that they went more above and beyond in that respect for the agreement that was already cut from the previous 10 years um, moving forward. And I know from insider perspectives that they weren't really willing or interested to increase it in the beginning. So um, in that respect, I think that there was a compromise made. But I do agree with Jackie in that sense that it did seem odd that, and I was very critical of the city council, that they were cutting a deal this late right before they leave as their final act especially after when city council also cut the budget of partnership agencies where like the boys and girls club funding was cut in like half where students volunteer at that organization so the question i think for geneva is what do we really want and how do we balance that and be fiscally responsible and fiscally conservative with the budget as well because there's a lot of um disparities between what our budget lines represent and what we're actually paying for and do we value those services or not and, and jackie you you started to get into it um, the merits of the of a deal like this, it seems like no matter what, and this is just my perspective, but whenever we're talking about any kind of, whether it's in the economic development realm or whether it's just a, a deal between uh, a city or a county or a town and a large entity of some sort, mm -hmm. um, it seems like the deal never feels big enough. And that tends to be the rub of a lot of, um, a lot of the average taxpayers, like like Ted is talking about, you know, if there is, and I'll just use this as an example because Gabe, you mentioned the the, the monetary uh, contribution to fire prevention. If there is a fire on that campus in Geneva, um, the response from not just the city but surrounding fire districts would be significantly different than if there's a, a fire on Pulteney Street. Mm or just, you know, a random house or whatever the case may be. Like, to me, that is where the issue becomes complicated for the average taxpayer because it seems like it's, it, it, in some ways, it's trying to put this large entity and the average taxpayer on the same, on the same level when that just doesn't <clears throat> seem like a fair setup or it doesn't seem equitable between the two, uh, between the two parties. Yeah, I... I have to say, and I'm sorry, Ted, but you know, I I don't agree that um, tax exemptions per, for churches and and other entities are a bad thing, right? Like I I think that civic organizations, including you know sec, secular and non secular serve critical purposes that make a community where you want to live. I've said time and time again, Geneva wouldn't be Geneva but for the colleges, the experiment station, FLCC, the hospital. I mean, the contributions to the vitality of the region and the, the offerings and the cultural diversity, you know, that is what makes Geneva a great place to, to live. Um, however, that being said, I do think that there needs to be a recognition, as Ted was saying, that um, services are services. Water, sewer, uh, fire, police protection, roadways, you know, road maintenance, those things are collective responsibilities of all of the users of those services. And I do think that's where the rub is. People feel like 
um, you know, the, the colleges, the roads through the colleges um, are paved by the city, are maintained by the city. Um, the If there is a fire alarm, which since going to the county 911 system, there are far more response. And this came up at the meeting. When the city decided to move to county 911, one of the things several of us identified we were supportive of the move to a county system, but we did identify that there was going to be an increase in response to the colleges because the colleges previously had an in-house system for dealing with things with the police and fire department. Um, that, when you go to county 911 system, goes away largely. That issue was never addressed. No one said, oh yeah, that's going to increase our costs. We're going to have trucks rolling more often. That is going to be an inconvenience. That's going to direct our attention from other things going on in the city, other responsibilities. So a failure to look at that has gotten us where we are now, where the actual costs for these responses is going up, yet the actual uh, reimbursement that we receive, which is not obligatory, it is voluntary on the part of the colleges, wasn't really keeping pace. So my main critique was not the absolute dollar amount that the colleges was contributing, it was that it is not tracked to any metric whatsoever. Mm. It's a number from the air. Mm. And I really have a problem with governments acting in an information vacuum. Like, let's look at what's actually happening. Let's try to track what those costs are. Let's get ourselves a ballpark figure of what we're talking about, and then let's negotiate. Instead, well, it's back of the envelope, here's what I think. And I think, well, and, and you've made this point with a lot of the issues today, is there seems to be a bias toward getting the deal done and having the vote and saying yes and going home for dinner. And when those little thorns in the side come up, they tend to be sort of pushed aside. Right. And, and so, I mean, there's a good point there. I guess I, I think your argument about the value that an entity provides to the city is legitimate. I think that might be an argument for maybe different tiers of taxation rather than tax exemption. I just I can't understand any organization that uses government service being exempt from having any responsibility to pay for any of those services. How did so my question is and I have a couple thoughts on this also but like how did this get how did these two get bundled? How did Finger Lakes Health and, and oh, Hobart so I think this goes back to the benefit the table, well it goes back to the benefit assessment district right so which like I said worst acronym for a policy <laughs> ever right but but cuz it was not a bad idea but that that's how it got framed um, the idea was certain city services should be assessed a linear foot fee, right? So it's about your frontage. That covers your streets, that covers your liability in terms of like magnitude of fire response, police potential response, you know? The linear foot should be a separate service. Now several communities have implemented a strategy like this. When we came forward that we wanted to do this, and it's interesting because I'm at HWS, in full disclosure, I'm teaching there this semester. I was teaching there when the Benefit Assessment District came up, 
and my support of it was a reason why I was no longer teaching there. And now I'm back, and I'm like, here we go again. They're bringing it up again. I'm out the door. But um, it's okay. Got it. You got to say what's right, regardless of the consequence. So um, the benefit assessment district would have levied a substantial fee, a line item fee, to all nonprofits, any property owner. Um, as you can imagine, I, many of the churches weren't happy. Some churches said, hey, yes, we should pay our fair share. It's not a huge amount, but it is a contribution. Um, but the hospital, the colleges, um, and the experiment station, although let's remember, the experiment station in Geneva is the New York State arm. It's not the Cornell Private University arm. There is some overlap, but it's not. It's different entity you're dealing with. So it's state property that we're talking about mostly. Um, anyway, that would have, for most property owners in Geneva, resulted in a lower annual bill. But it would have been a substantial increase for current nonprofits that aren't paying anything. So the colleges led the way with the hospital in threatening to sue us. They said, go forward with this. We will sue you. We've got great attorneys. We will bury your attorneys. You know, this is that you don't want this. You'll end up with nothing. So how about this deal? And one of the caveats in the agreement is that the city had to agree not to pursue this benefit assessment district. So that's how the two got lumped together. And that's why when, um, you know, when they talked about it last month, um, a couple of people said, well, we're not going to reinstitute the benefit assessment district and get sued. It does, it's not an either or. The colleges and the hospital know that the city could. The case law is building toward that being a viable solution. Mm -hmm. I think that the colleges wanted for their own internal budgetary planning the assurance that that wasn't going to come up for another 12 years now, two years on this contract and 10 into the future. But was it in the city's best interest to agree to that? I still say no. Okay, so sorry, I'm sorry. That was a long lesson on benefit assessment. Well, and, and so I think kind that. of the larger <laughs> issue is is I think we've lost track of what taxes are for. You know, we have one side of the political divide would have us believe that taxes are money that government takes from us and flushes down a drain. Uh, we use taxes to encourage behavior, to punish behavior. Taxes are supposed to be to pay for government services. And that's why I think we've lost track of what they're for. And when you put it in those terms, again, I'm, I'm happy that the college contributes to the society, that the hospital contributes to the society. Like I said, I think our radio station does. I think my favorite brewery contributes to the well-being of uh, Geneva. <laughs> but they have to pay taxes. I think if you use government services, you should have to pay a reasonable amount for the use of those services, no matter who you are. Yeah, it's interesting. Like my, my issue with this seems to always come back to the idea that this institution, I'll just use the college as an example, I won't even get into the healthcare space, that this institution, and this is, I think, the way the average taxpayer sort of evaluates this whole thing. You have a, a college that's charging $60,000, $70,000, thank you for correcting me on that, per student, and 
this idea that, and every large corporation does this. They, they come back to these, these communities that host these things and say, God, you know, we just don't have the money. Like it's just not there. Okay, well then you're, something is seismically off in your organization if $10 million over the course of, of 10 years or, or $2 million, whatever it is, whatever the number is, can't be swung, like that can't be budgeted. Like it, it feels like the institution getting out of, of what they should owe the community because of this thing that they say they provide the community. There well, are plenty of people who live in Geneva who do not benefit from having a college campus that costs $70,000 to attend. Uh, I'm sorry, but not everybody works in the service industry. Not everybody gets those ancillary benefits. And also the ancillary sort of service benefits that businesses feel around a college campus are not spread equally. They are not. They are not experienced equally. There are plenty of businesses. Okay, I agree. I agree that there's not an equal benefit conferred to every member of a community by virtue of the colleges or the mm -hmm. hospital being present. But I do believe that there is a community benefit, mm -hmm. whether it's attracting new businesses, whether it is improvements to property value. But there is the issue. You have to be able to quantify those. Now, the colleges has done economic impact study after economic impact study. That's useful information. But we also have data about the negative effect on property value immediately surrounding the campus for quality of life issues, for noise, for property neglect, those kinds of issues. Um, you know, we have data on the number of police calls, the number of fire calls. It should be a data-driven decision to measure that impact and say, we know we're getting this collective benefit. But we are also experiencing these direct negative impacts for which there must be some consideration if you want to be a good neighbor. Now, again, it's not obligatory that anybody is a good neighbor if they're tax exempt, right? <laughs> but is the reputation the colleges wants at, to be do they want to be on par with Seneca Meadows where they have, you know, they're Ouch. here, they're here and they're going to claim they have a positive impact on the economy, but really everybody wishes they would leave. That is not the reputation HWS wants and it shouldn't have that reputation because it's not Seneca Meadows. It actually is a good and, you know, positive influence on the community at large. But it doesn't that doesn't go for free like it's mm. still there is still a gap there that other institutions of higher education other hospitals other nonprofit entities in other parts of the state and country have recognized and feel a moral obligation to address i think the colleges are doing something but not enough it just did to yeah there needs to be a, a data-driven solution yes. you're completely right about yeah. that well, but apparently and, and we're not your idea of data-driven fact-based discussions and politics will never catch on <laughs> Don't unfortunately say that. No. well it's not going to catch on in this <laughs> application for I, at least I, I know 12 you're a years dreamer. <laughs> I no I, I, you're I, absolutely right that that's we we with the technology we have we ought to be able to put dollars and cents figures this is right. the benefit we get this is the cost you impose on us, 
and and we should be able to balance those factors out and come up with a number and say this is what you owe us or this is what we owe you. I ha I have to believe in my heart that eventually people will get sick of haphazard arbitrary government. That they will understand that government serves a legitimate purpose and that we are all in it together trying to make sure that it is deployed effectively and efficiently. I'm that 60 is... years old. I hope you all see that day. <laughs> I know that I won't. <laughs> okay, so uh, our last topic of the day, and we don't have much time to talk about it, but I do want to go around the table and at least get uh, some broad ideas. Uh, the Auburn Double Days might not, and Ted, I'm going to start with you on this one. Um, the Auburn Double Days might be facing extinction. Uh, basically, a deal between Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball could spell the end of professional baseball in some communities. Uh, Batavia and Auburn, I think, are the two local-ish examples. Um, they say that there will be baseball of some kind preserved in communities like Auburn, um, but if it's not affiliated with, so, you know, I have been to several minor league games in my life. Last year, I went to a couple. I went to one in Auburn, and it wasn't that well attended, it no. seemed. Um, is this, like, if it's not, if it has no affiliation with Major League Baseball, I can only imagine that attendance is going to get worse and worse. And at what point do you continue to maintain a stadium and an expense at, little or no return. Well, here's the thing. Minor League Baseball serves two purposes. On the local level, it's entertainment, and the teams are locally owned. In the case of the Double Days, the city owns the team, city own, or the, the city owns the park. Major League Baseball would just as soon fold up the minor leagues and put all of their player development in a big complex in Florida somewhere. The wild card in all this that a lot of people aren't really talking about is that baseball, Major League Baseball, operates under an antitrust exemption granted by Congress. And if they go through with this plan, congressmen, including Chuck Schumer in the Senate, will go to baseball and say, that's a nice antitrust exemption you have. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. I don't think this plan is going anywhere. I, I really don't because Congress holds that antitrust exemption. If baseball loses that, all hell breaks loose with their financial models. So my belief is that this was kind of a trial balloon floated. I don't think you're going to see it happen. Uh, the discussion will continue because, it, it, you know, for all the reasons we've been talking about, nobody wants to spend money. Major League Baseball doesn't want to spend money. They don't want to subsidize these teams where, you know, for every minor league player who's drafted, I think one out of 50 or something makes the major leagues. But my prediction is that little will come of this, at least this time around. That's interesting. That's not what I expected. My issue tends to be when I see elected officials get involved in things related to sports. Um, when they start. Well, and that's why they are, though, because that, that you know, Major League Baseball. Sports is a weird business model because in most businesses, you want to crush the competition. But in sports, you have to have healthy competition in order to have the league exist. So the Yankees want to beat the Red Sox on the field, but they don't want to run them out of business because then you don't have anyone to play. Okay, so, that's, so then my question becomes, is it a net loss or a net profit? to have these minor league teams continue to operate. And I mean across the spectrum. I wonder if 
Major League Baseball or even Minor League Baseball is sort of looking at the numbers and saying, you know, teams like Auburn just aren't, you know, teams like the Double Days just aren't making a profit. And at some point, how long can we subsidize this across the board, antitrust regulation or not? I mean, at what point do you have to say, like, you know, we just, it's black and white, we have to pull the plug. Yeah, I, I think that, that, that minor league baseball might be a nostalgia that we can't afford too much longer, just because the, there's a glut of televised sports. You know, all due respect to the double days. I love them. I go a couple of times a year, but you can sit home and watch a half a dozen major league baseball games on TV or on your phone, yeah. you know, every night. So it's it's a, an issue that's going to have to be looked at, but again, I just think in the short term... I think Major League Baseball floated this out here to see what would happen. A few members of Congress from some of the teams that would be affected have already stepped forward and said antitrust exemption, Mm -hmm. and Major League Baseball does not want to lose that. Gabe, thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, maintaining the stadiums is going to be a really big issue, and it's a big structural cost. And the big question for me, at least when I was reading that headline, is what happens to these stadiums if, if the teams were to leave um, contrary to Ted's position on that, because you know there are major expense that the towns and those local municipalities have to burden, and they don't really get used all too much aside from maybe the the typical minor league team or the college program or the peewees that may use those areas and those diamonds. So I'm interested to see kind of where this the structure of the stadiums play out if this were to happen. It is interesting, uh, Jackie. I am curious um, as sort of the the watchful ethical eye that we have in the room um is is there any kind of you know is where does that point where you know elected officials and the folks who are in major league baseball and minor league baseball and even local government for that matter come together and say like this isn't working how should that conversation even look Well, I mean, we had those conversations around McDonough Park in Geneva on a smaller scale, right? Um, But, and I grew up going to Geneva Cubs games, so I kind of, I like local baseball. But, um, I, again, I mean, I think it dovetails what we were talking about just a second ago with the colleges and nonprofits. There are certain things that contribute to a community's quality of life, and you have to be checking in with residents and asking, you know, is it how does it affect you if this goes away and if it's something that people are saying no our community is worse for losing this then you keep investing in it um to a point right i mean it can't it maybe if people are just saying that but then they're not putting their money where their mouth is then you have to reevaluate whether or not that is something people want but i don't know i mean i on issues of baseball and firefighting, actually, I have to defer to my cousin, who's a firefighter in Worcester, and they're getting this, you know, Red Sox affiliate and stuff. So, so you know, local baseball is where it's where it's at. Which but, is a giant boondoggle, by the way. Another topic uh-oh, for another uh-oh, day. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I, I don't. I think local governments are just always trying to walk that line between what brings even if it's an intangible benefit you know an a economic benefit that you can't really quantify um to our community versus our very limited resources which have to balance out those other community needs so. all right uh ted 
quickly, where can folks hear you Monday through Friday? On the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio in Geneva, that's 95.9 FM and 1240 AM WGBA. In Auburn, it's 98.1 FM and 1590 AM WAUB. And that's all for us today. Ted and I will be back next Friday. For Jackie, Gabe, and Ted, I'm Josh Durso. We will see you next time.